Hi there and welcome to Get Started, the beginner's guide to the stock market by My Wall Street. I'm James and I'm the head of content and publishing with My Wall Street. In this five-part podcast series, I'm joined by Rory, the head analyst here at My Wall Street, as we explore how anyone can make their first move towards becoming a successful investor by following just a few simple steps. The episodes in this podcast are based on My Wall Street's Learn app, a free educational tool that has been downloaded more than 2 million times worldwide. As you listen along, it would be helpful to download the Learn app for yourself and follow along with the lessons as we get into them in more depth and give you some extra tips and insights. If you listen into these five episodes, less than three hours in total, I can guarantee you that you'll have everything you need to just, as the title says, get started. Hi folks, not only do we want to help you get started investing with this educational podcast, we want to go a step further and get you closer to your first portfolio of stocks. We've been picking market-beating stocks for over 10 years now with a strategy based on long-term mindful investing. So we're giving you access to one free stock from our extensive library that we've built and added to over the years. This is an easy-to-digest report of a high-quality business we believe has all the characteristics to be a long-term winner. That's right, a free stock pick just for you. Simply head over to mywallstreet.com to find out more or click the link in the show notes for this episode. So Rory, we're on to episode four of the Get Started series. And in this episode, I want to look a little bit deeper into the company. So in the last episode, we talked about some of, I suppose, the the qualitative aspects we look for in companies, you know, things like company culture, visionary leader, the things that are kind of hard to measure. In this episode, I want to dig a little bit into the things that we can measure. And I suppose what many people would think when they think of stock investing, the traditional kinds of analysis you do. So the first thing I want to look at is, is sales growth. So when we talk about a company, and and the sales they make what are we talking about specifically there so sales are obviously like sales or revenue are the engine of the kind of the metaphorical ship that is a business it's what you know pushes everything forward and important that you understand how a company makes money that might sound like really simple but so many people invest without understanding this very basic thing uh it may and sometimes it might actually surprise you firstly plenty of companies have multiple revenue streams you know they don't just make money one way uh, Coca-Cola, to use an example that we've been using in previous podcasts, has over 200 brands around the world. Okay. Um, you know, Sprite is one of their brands. Fanta is one of their brands. They have huge, yeah. huge interests in bottled water. They own plenty of fruit juice brands. They own plenty of tea brands. They own coffee brands. They even own a coffee chain called Costa Coffee, which is quite big in the UK. I'm not entirely yeah. sure if they're, if they're in America yet. But Google, another example, right? They make the vast majority of their money from advertising. Right? We, we know this. But they also have a cloud business. Um, they also have a hardware business where they sell phones. And Android is part of the, you know, the Google family. Um, and then they have these things called other bets, which is things like autonomous driving. Uh, which at the moment doesn't make any money, but it's one of those things that perhaps in 10 years may be a major revenue source for them. So it's it's very important that you find out what your business is actually doing to generate revenue because it's not quite as straightforward as you might think when you think of some of the, the, the companies that you might think you know and understand. There might be some kind of surprises in there for you. Yeah. Um, it's also important that, you know, imagine if you find a product, let's say, that you really love and you would like to invest in it. An awful lot of the time, what you might find is that that product is owned by a much larger company. This happens a lot with kind of the big kind of conglomerates like Procter & Gamble or Whirlpool. You might see a product that you think is great and he's like, God, I'd love to invest in that product. But that product is owned by a company that's, you know, $100 billion in market cap. And this product is only a very, very small part of that business. 
in that case, you know, your whole kind of theory of why you were investing in the company, it's not going to kind of play out because it's going to be such a small part of the overall revenue generation that it probably won't make a difference. And you may end up like finding out that you like loads of the products that Procter & Gamble owns, and that might be a reason to invest, but you can't invest based solely on that kind of one small product that happens to be less than 1% of their revenue. And I think we saw a kind of an example of this in, in the news headlines recently with the with talk of like coronavirus vaccines and stuff. And there was a mad scramble to invest in these companies like Pfizer um, because, you know, people were anticipating a lot of sales. But it turns out that, you know, vaccine sales are actually a very, very minute part of the overall revenue that a company like Pfizer makes. Yeah, absolutely. Pfizer's, you know, multi-billion dollar revenue generating company with 30, 40 different big drugs that they sell around the world all the time. The vaccine was going to be a part of their business, but not a huge part of their business. And on top of that, you know, there was, they promised to sell it for cost to a lot of governments. And so, so you had to kind of understand they couldn't invest solely on the fact that it was, that they created a vaccine. So essentially figure figure out the revenues company streams, try and figure out who their customers are, okay, and maybe think about kind of the competitors that are out there for the business. That's kind of step one. Next, you kind of want to find out if the sales is growing or declining. Uh, in general, you want to be investing in a company that sales growth. It's not usually a good sign when a company is seeing a decline in sales. Now, sometimes yeah. obviously there's, you know, specific circumstances where sales do decline. The coronavirus has just passed is a very good example. A lot of companies saw a sales decline. That's just a kind of, you know, uh, an ad hoc thing that just happened. It's an event driven um, decline in sales that's going to be corrected over the next couple of years. An act of God, as they'd say in the insurance industry. <laughs> yes, like an act of God. And by the way, you mean, so you need to find out this information the best place to find this information is simply to look at the company's accounts uh, every public company has to release accounts every three months uh, you can find them on the their investor relations website so if you type in the name of a company and investor relations into google you'll find the investor relations account you can also find them on the sec website but investor relations is a good place to go to find them um, and the first thing you should be looking at really is the income statement so the income statement is the is the account that shows kind of where money's coming in what the expenses are and you can use the income statement you can look at revenue see how much money they re- they generated you can see if they made more revenue or less revenue than the year before yeah um or you can see you can even see if they made more revenue or less revenue than the same quarter in the last year uh, now it's important that you do when you're doing these comparisons, you do them year over year. So you don't compare revenue quarter over quarter. Yeah. Because most businesses have some form of seasonality. Cars, for example, are typically bought in May because that's when people get their tax refunds and they have a bit of money to throw around. Um, big Other big ticket items like iPhones, TVs are typically bought around December as the holiday season kicks off. So, you know, so definitely make sure you're doing uh, year over year, quarter over quarter uh checks you're not you're not doing it sequentially yeah and so you know what you want to kind of see is steady growth or even accelerating growth is a good sign uh, as companies get bigger it becomes harder to sustain rapid growth because obviously just the law of large numbers it's you know you're, you're getting you're not going to con- be able to continue to make 50 percent growth as the company grows unless you're amazon <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, speaking of revenue there, and and I know from experience that when we're lo- looking at a lot of smaller companies, revenue is often the, the very first figure or, or metric we go to. The purpose of companies, though, is to turn a profit. And, you know, a lot of these smaller companies, we look at revenue because they have no profit. Can you talk to me a little bit about the idea of profit, profitability and margins and how important that is in the whole dynamic of assessing companies? 
So yeah, while you're on the income statement, you can you can have a look at the margins that a business has, and these margins aren't to be confused with investing on margin, which we talked about in the um, in the second uh, podcast. Um, margins are a measure of profitability. Uh, there's three sort of types of margins. The first you'll come across is the gross margin, and the gross margin is essentially a measure of your gross profit. It's how much how much of each dollar do you keep after you sell a product? Okay, and that's the the very kind of top of the of the margin waterfall let's say let's say you have a you have a product that you sell for a hundred dollars but it costs you fifty dollars to produce that product and get it to the store ready to sell so you only keep fifty dollars off the of the the actual first transaction right? yeah in that case you have a 50 percent margin and high margins are great <laughs> the higher the better yeah. really is especially when it comes to that top of the top of the funnel because once you have high gross margins that means you have a lot more money for everything else that you need to spend you need to spend money on now, different margins have different different industries, sorry, have different margin profiles. So software, for example, tends to have much higher margins because you're not selling a physical product. Yeah. You know, once you once you've made the software, you have it there, you don't have to create a new version of the software every single time you sell it to someone. You're selling the same thing. So you just want to sell it to as many people as possible. And so you can see software companies with margins in the high 80s, even low wow. 90%, you know, the really, really top drawer, high margin businesses. You look at something more like a manufacturing business, like an autom- automaker, for example, you know, they have to build a new car for every car they sell. It's not, they, so it's, you know, it's not every cheap. car they, no, it's not cheap to build cars. So they tend to have lower margins because as I said, they have to create a new car for every single sale they generate. Then you look at something like retail, for example, especially kind of like grocery stores, they have very low margins because they're not really making anything. They're kind of just facilitating the purchase of something. There's yeah. a space in which to buy someone else's product. And so there's an awful lot of people that need to be paid from the purchase of that product. The grocery stores essentially, you know, buying it for $9 and selling it for $10 if they're lucky. Therefore, they're making a, you know, a 10% margin now. So, you know, companies have other expenses other than just what they buy and sell, you know, or or what it costs to produce the product. They've got to think of kind of their sales and marketing, their advertising budget, for example, is a major expense that a lot of businesses have. Companies, particularly in the tech space, have to do a lot of research and development. So they have to pay people to work on the product, to make the product better, to keep having new upgrades and new products to offer people. And finally, there's general administrative costs, which is just, you know, the rent, the, the, the roof over your head, the legal fees, the, the, the CEO's salary, all these things come under general administrative costs. And these are what we call operational costs, those, those, all those kind of cut together. And it's just the, the cost of operating the business on a day-to-day basis. And yeah. so once you've got your gross profits, you subtract all these operational costs and you're left with your operating margin. Yeah. Um, and again, varies widely from, from industry to industry. Uh, but again, higher the better, typically, is what you want to see. And finally, the last one is you have things called non-operational expenses. That's things like taxes. It's interest paid out on debt. And they have to be paid before your final profit, your net profit. The percentage of that that you get from your revenue is called your net margin. Now, you want to see companies with strong margins, particularly in comparison to competitors. So uh, if you have good margins compared to a competitor, that means you're doing something better than them pretty much is the, is the bottom line. Yeah, you have an edge over them, I suppose. You certainly have an edge. Maybe you have pricing power over them. A great example is Tiffany. Uh, Tiffany has very high gross margins on the rings that they sell, the diamonds that they sell, compared to someone like Signet, who's basically to sell the same product. But Tiffany has that brand that people associate with it being a really premium product. So they're yeah. able to sell essentially the same thing for much more. And, and they're able to 
generate much higher gross margins. So just on that comparison, if you were deciding you wanted to invest in a jewelry company, you would rather invest in Tiffany rather yeah. than Cygnus because they have kind of this better these better margins. And um, now importantly, you can still make a lot of money investing in low margin businesses. Uh, Amazon was a very low margin business for decades, but still one of the best investments anyone could make in the last 20 years. Uh, what you kind of want to see is companies that can increase their margins. So if you can, if you like, again, when you're looking at a company in terms of like the revenue, you want to see sales growth. You don't want to see sales declining. You certainly want to see margins going up rather than going down. Yeah. Uh, companies that are able to increase their margins are doing them, you know, either a couple of ways. They're either increasing their prices and, and people are paying more for what they were getting previously, or they're cutting expenses. They're becoming more efficient with how they spend money. Yeah. Uh, so maybe, the, you know, they're able to cut their marketing expense and it doesn't see sales reduce, you know, or, or sales becomes a small percentage of their overall revenue as they grow. Is it ever the case, Rory, that, you know, in, in some instances, a company's margin might be growing, but they might face a quarter or a few quarters of tighter margins, thanks to maybe unexpected expenses? Again, I'm thinking of the coronavirus might have put a squeeze on a lot of people's margins. Certainly, yeah, that happens all the time. Um, one-off expenses, restructuring costs, for example, can definitely hamper margins, uh, particularly in things like retail. You can see yeah. periods where, where, where companies might do a lot of promotion so uh, they might decide you know they've, if they've built up an awful lot of inventory and they're trying to get rid of it they might you know slash their prices in order to move that in, in, uh, inventory on rather than have it just sit in a warehouse which costs the money and therefore you will see the kind of margin contraction for that hopefully one-time event now if it starts happening all the time it's not a one-time event anymore and you're starting to think right well this is now the new margin profile of this business they've, they've seen contracting rev or margins which isn't great um interesting as, as well you know some companies aren't yet profitable. Uh, that's, that's, that's one of the, especially if you're investing in small growth companies, you'll find an awful lot of them aren't yet profitable. It's not the end of the world, but it's important that you are able to see some kind of path towards profitability. Yeah. Um, if their revenue is kind of growing and their costs are becoming a smaller percentage of their revenue over time, then you can see, okay, if they just keep this revenue keeps growing and uh, costs keep declining or costs keep becoming a smaller percentage of the revenue, eventually it will tip over and they will become profitable. So if there was a company whose revenue was growing massively, but the costs were also growing massively, maybe in line with revenue or even higher than revenue growth, I imagine that would be a massive red flag for you. Yeah, it's not necessarily a red flag because that can happen, particularly in very small companies. Okay, orange flag. <laughs> <laughs> it could be an orange flag. With very small companies, obviously, you especially with software companies, like I said, yeah. with software, you, you build the product and that costs you an awful lot of money to build the product. But once you've got the product, you just want to sell it to as many people as possible because it doesn't yeah. cost you anything more. You know, if, if, if 10 people use the product or 10 million people use the product, it doesn't matter to you. you so you want as many people using the product as possible so you might spend an awful lot of money developing the product and marketing the product and it might seem like your expenses are just crazy compared to your revenue generation but if enough people start taking it on suddenly that revenue starts growing and if it's if it's like a subscription business as well if that's recurring revenue is going to yeah. happen again and again every year it's worth the early investment to get it off the ground and get people using it absolutely so definitely a lot of subtleties to look into and dynamics with with, with profitability margins Remember, folks, head on over to mywallstreet.com to get access to our free stock analysis. We've picked one outstanding business from our extensive back catalogue and we're giving it to you for free. Let's move on to something that's giving me horrendous flashbacks of business studies when I was in school, the balance sheet. What do we need to look out for in a company's balance sheet that won't send us to sleep? 
<laughs> there's not much that will send you to sleep. Um, the balance sheet, the balance sheet is the second of the three primary accounts the companies post. What the balance sheet is there for is to give you a snapshot of what the business looks like at that very moment. Okay. Um, and really what it does, it just gives you a sense of the assets the company ha- has and the liabilities that the company has. Now you can really deep dive into a balance sheet but as a new investor two of the kind of most important things that you want to see is you want to see that it has a strong balance sheet and by strong I mean that the company has plenty of cash is always a good sign Uh, cash gives company options so you look at cash and you also look at something called cash equivalents so things that can be converted into cash quite rapidly so like investments the company might have made themselves I'm thinking of Tesla have um, Bitcoin on their um, balance sheet don't they I suppose that would be uh, considered <laughs> maybe a bad cash, example. <laughs> cash and equivalents. Um, it, it's typically you know, bonds are, are would be considered that something they convert pretty rapidly over to cash if they wanted to, or certificates of deposit. They're not actually physical cash that they have in the account, yeah. but they're very similar to cash. So they can be converted into cash quite rapidly. Um, that gives company options. When you have cash on the balance sheet, it means you can do a lot of stuff. You know, you can invest more in the business. You can grow your sales team. You can um, spend money on marketing, spend money on research and development, acquire competitors, acquire uh, uh, other other businesses that might augment your own services. You know, all these things are available to you when you have cash. Without cash, you're pretty limited in what you can do. Um, so just having a look at the cash and equivalent, seeing if they have a good chunk of cash, particularly if they're an unprofitable business. You know, having cash is very important when you're unprofitable to ensure that you can keep paying the bills, that you've got that kind of, you know, you've got enough to survive this cash burn that's happening as you as you go from unprofitability to profitability. Yeah. Hopefully profitability. <laughs> um, so you want to make sure you can keep paying the bills. And again, you can do this, you can do year over your comparisons on the balance sheet. You, you can see if cash is going up or if it's going down. If it's going down, it's going down by a lot. In particular, you should start asking yourself, why is it going down? Where It may have been put to good use, but it's a good question to ask. Yeah. Um, the flip side of that is to look at a company's debt. Uh, now, you know, in personal finance, we always think it's debt is a bad thing. Uh, you shouldn't have personal debt. It's not really the same in the world of business. Uh, businesses can and should take out debt for a number of reasons, particularly, you know, at the moment, there's very low interest rates. So taking out debt is a good way to fund your business, to, yeah. do, to, to, to put cash on the balance sheet, to do all those things we talked about. But, you know, what you don't want to typically want to see is a company that has way more debt than cash uh, or a company that's, you know, there's more debt on their balance sheet than the value of the company. That would be a very bad sign. Yeah. Um, now, this, this is a, a generalization. It's a rule of thumb. Some businesses are very good with debt. Some, you know, banks, for example, debt is their product. So they always have a lot of debt. That's yeah. what they sell. Um, but generally, you'd like to see companies with more cash than debt. If you can find companies with no debt, that's great. That means they have lots of options out there. And again, checking it year over year, making sure it's not going crazy, making sure it's not going up too much or, or that the debt's not going up too much and that the cash isn't going down too much. These kind of things just give you a good example of where the company stands in terms of its kind of its 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 strength, its, its balance sheet strength. Absolutely. And, you know, these reports, they can look quite intimidating. There's an awful lot of information in there. But, you know, if you're going to put your money behind the business, you should be kind of investigating these things, making sure you have an idea of what's going on in the business. You don't have to, you know, dive into every single thing, but get a good sense of what's happening on the balance sheet. Yeah, definitely. The, the underlying strength of a, a business is a good way to think of it. The final account to look for is the cash flow statement. How does cash flow differentiate from just revenue? It seems like they're both ways to look at money coming into the business. 
Yeah, confuses a lot of people. It's uh, this idea that revenue is the kind of sales that you make, you know, in, in, in a particular amount of time. But the sales you make doesn't necessarily mean that the cash is coming in during that same period. The cash flow statement is very much a kind of ledger of cash in, cash out over a particular time frame. It can, you know, vary massively in terms of revenue depending on when you when you take payment or when you or you know when you pay out your creditors. You know, the all these things can affect the cash that's coming in, the cash that's coming out, where you're investing money, for example, how you're financing the business, all these things can make cash flow versus kind of profitability seem vastly different. And an awful lot of the times you will see companies that aren't yet profitable, but yeah. who are cash flow positive. That's kind of the first step towards profitability is becoming cash flow positive. And companies that are cash flow positive have that cash they can play around with that they can help grow the business. And it's, it's a good thing to see a company being cash flow positive, at least if they're not profitable. So again, cash flow positive just means that there's more money coming in than going out. Yeah. Okay. Good to know. Um, let's move on then. And, you know, we talked in the last episode about the importance of strong leadership. You can see strong leadership in many different ways. You can see it in how, you know, happy the company's employees are and, and how well the business performs, I suppose, from an ethical and social point of view. But another side of strong ownership is how much of a stake the owner or the management team actually have in the company. And this is seen through insider ownership. Um, talk to me a little bit about, about how much importance or weight we put on insider ownership. I think it's a very important thing to look at. Now, the asterisk to that is yeah. that it depends on the business very much. So typically in, in all businesses, you will find that management own some shares in the business. And this is because a lot of managers, CEOs, etc., they get yeah. paid in company shares. That, that's that's part of the remuneration package. Uh, and not just CEO, the, the, the whole management team uh, usually gets some sort of share option um, attached to their, their salary. Uh, so and you can actually see this. You can go into a company's accounts. It's a different type of account than the one we were previously talking about. It's, it's called the proxy statement, it's, but it's on the same investor relations website. And you can find out how much the how much the CEO is getting paid. You can find out what his 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 share options are, and you can find out what percentage of the business management owns in terms of what their share stake is. And um, with a founder, if you've got a, a business that's a young business with a founder who's still at the company, who's still CEO of the company, you would expect them to own quite yeah. a substantial stake in the business because they started the business at one point, they had 100% share ownership. So obviously it, it will be taken down as they bring in investments to finance the company. And then when they IPO, they give off an awful lot of shares to finance the business even more so that their percentage will be constantly being you know worn away. But it's very nice to see managers, CEOs that have a high percentage stake in the business. And when I say high, you know, yeah. five to ten percent is quite high. That is a that's that's quite a lot of a business to own, particularly if you're talking about a, a multi-billion-dollar business. However, you know, it's not. This isn't kind of a a really yeah. kind of hard and fast rule because with companies that have been around for an awful long time, it'd be very hard to find high insider ownership. You know, look at something like Disney, for example. You know, the founder is long deceased. So therefore, the idea that someone would have a very large stake in Disney, which is, you know, a multi-billion dollar company, would be unusual. Yeah. You wouldn't expect to see that. What's great about 
high insider ownership is that it aligns the interests of management with the shareholders. If they have a lot of money tied up in the business, you kind of have more faith in them that they're going to act responsibly and try and grow that wealth. They're not going to you know, diminish that wealth. They do something that's counter to the interests of the shareholders. Something that I really do like to see is when you have a company where the founder is no longer involved, and let's say a kind of a, a, a professional CEO has been brought in to run the business, and that CEO has accumulated yeah. a large ownership in the business. That's great to see. That means that that CEO is behaving yeah. like a founder, like an owner. You know, he's not just in there to cash a salary every month. He really believes in the business. He wants to be part of the growth of the business. So that's even sometimes better than seeing a founder CEO who has a large stakeholding in the business, someone who has gone out of their way to build up a nice stake in the business. Yeah, it's 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 a pretty clear sign that, you know, a new CEO isn't just a mercenary coming in for a big paycheck, that they're actually putting their own personal wealth on the table along with the performance of the company. Indeed. And and you can see as well, I mean, a lot of a lot of new investors tend to get caught up in this idea of insider buying and selling, because you can see this. You can go and, and, and find out when management have sold shares or when they've bought shares. Insider selling isn't really as big a deal, I think, as most people yeah. kind of make out. Uh, for the most part, like I said, a lot of CEOs' wage packages are, are tied to the stocks that they bring in. So a lot of the time they're just selling the stocks that they've accumulated as part of their wages and either either to kind of, you know, invest yeah. it elsewhere, buy a house, <laughs> buy an island, buy a yacht, whatever they want to do. You know, these are, uh, it's down to them. Unfortunately, as shareholders, we can't dictate to the CEOs how they spend their money. So that's not a that's not a huge thing. When you see an insider buying a lot of shares, that can be a very bullish signal because obviously they don't have to buy shares. They have decided yeah. to put money into the business because either they they know something. If they know something that they're that's not public, they're not supposed to be buying shares. That's illegal. But it, they, if they just have a kind of good feeling that the business is going to perform well and they buy shares, that's always a very bullish signal. It tends to send the stock up when insiders make big purchases. Definitely one to keep an eye on. Yeah. So when we talk about companies, I, I suppose the next level is that as we've talked about, you know, all companies are different and all industries are different. And specifically with industries, there's very different metrics that we can look at, look at across different industries. So, you know, you mentioned, for example, that SaaS or, or cloud companies often have higher margins than hardware companies. But they're also like, for example, in the restaurant industry, have certain metrics and things to look at, which are quite important that other industries don't have. Can you talk to me about a few of these kind of industry specific metrics to look at? Yeah, so within the kind of idea of looking at the company's sales and the balance sheet and all this, you can also kind of read down through the quarterly reports and most companies will break down the business with a couple of kind of key, what I call key yep. uh, performance metrics. So things that they use within the company to measure success. Uh, and like I said, it is varies quite widely across industries. One that's specific to the restaurant industry is one called same store sales. So that's a way of measuring how much money one of the, like a restaurant made that was there 12 months ago as opposed to yeah. you know a new restaurant that they've opened in the last 12 months. That's important because restaurant chains are constantly building new restaurants and so revenue growth you can see their sales are growing, but how much of that is just from opening new restaurants? What about the restaurants that were there 12 months ago? How are they performing? Are they getting busier? Are they are they getting uh, less custom? Um, so same source sales is a very important one for restaurants. It's kind of a combination of foot traffic, so yeah. how many people are going into the restaurant, uh, and also the average ticket, so are people spending more or less every time they come in? Um, so that's a very important metric for the restaurant uh, 
sector. It's also the, similar to the retail sector. Again, they want to see stores, are stores performing? Is a store that we had 12 months ago seeing more people come in? Are they spending more money? So same store sales is used in the restaurant sector and retailers. Um, now, when you come to something like software, for example, you see some very different metrics. One particular one is retention. So we talk about SaaS, software as a service companies. These companies are selling software yeah. on a subscription basis. And when you're selling something on a subscription, and it doesn't have to be software, we talk about Netflix as well, that's a subscription business. Retention is a very important metric to look at. So retention is how many customers are you keeping every year? Uh, if, if you've got a retention rate of 99%, that means 99 out of 100 customers that you yeah. had last year are still with you. Um, that's great, that's very high retention. Um, and when you see high retention like that, it's a symbol that customers like your product. You know, it's a sign that customers want to keep spending money with you, or conversely, it's a sign that your yeah. product it's very sticky and the customers would have a hard time leaving you as a, as a customer. That It would be very hard for them to go to a competitor yeah. or to stop using your software. And so that's just two examples and you'll find them across across different sectors will have different kind of metrics as you kind of start looking into different businesses you'll start to see the same ones crop up in, in the same industry over time yeah absolutely another one to add there is bookings that you often see in video game industry and you know once you start to see it in one report you see it repeatedly and, and you kind of learn to look out for it as an important metric um let's move on then to a question i think we get all the time is how do you know if a company is undervalued or overvalued? <laughs> I want a quick answer on this, Rory, because it's surely surely a very easy question to answer. Uh, that, remi- that, I think that reminds me of a story that someone asked Warren Buffett how he became so rich. And he said, I buy businesses when they're undervalued and sell them when they're overvalued. And the person asked, how do you know when a business is undervalued and how do you know it's overvalued? And he goes, that's the hard part. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, the the concept of overvalued and undervalued is something that then this now crops up. So you've found a business that you're interested in, you've looked through the metrics, you've tried to find you know the sales, uh, you've looked at the balance sheets, you've looked at the key performance metrics. You're, you're, you've got an awful lot of information, and you want to know whether a company is overvalued or undervalued. And um, it, this is this is the dilemma. This is what stock investing is all about. Now, you know, there are m- many ways that people use to try and value businesses. You can go and do a discounted cash flow model where you try and uh, predict their sales over the next 10 years, predict all their margins over the next 10 years, and you can put it into Excel and you can do a couple of formulas and it'll spit you out a number at the end. And that number will be down to like two decimal points. And uh, that's uh, the way a lot of people want to invest. And you can go online, you can learn how to do this. Um, it's not, people seem to think it's a perfect way of doing it. It's definitely not. It's, it's got, you know, it's, you're predicting, you're predicting things into the future. So you need to put in numbers that are going to change rapidly what the final outcome is going to be. Another way people do it is kind of use things called valuation metrics. There's kind of ratios that are used to determine whether a company is overvalued or undervalued. And they're, they're worth looking at. Um, yeah. But I can't stress enough how these are only tools. Okay, uh, They're not something you should rely on for making decisions. Uh, the price to earnings ratio is probably the most famous one. You take the value of the entire company and you divide it by how much money the company earned over the last year, profits and profits the company earned over the last 10 year, and it'll spit you out a number. Um, now, the number, okay, it's very important that the number is is only used kind of to measure against other companies that are similar to 
that business. You can't compare the PE of a software business to an energy company uh, or a retailer. Yeah. You know, th- these things vary depending on the industry. And it's also important that you look at it over time, not just in a single point of time. So, you know, telling me that the PE of Home Depot is 24, it doesn't mean anything. Um, telling me that uh, the PE of Home Depot Uh, last year was 20 and the year before was 14 would suggest that the company is more overvalued or it's more overvalued than it was two years ago. Okay. Um, Similarly, looking across two types of businesses that are similar, you know, you take something like Home Depot and Lowe's, you know, pretty much the the exact same business in a way, uh, or definitely do the the exact same thing. As I speak, Home Depot has a PE of 26 uh, and Lowe's has a PE of 24. That would suggest that Lowe's is a better value investment than Home Depot. Now, I don't subscribe to this. Uh, I think Home Depot is a much better business. I think they're a better brand. I think they have better management. And therefore, I'd rather invest in Home Depot. I'd rather pay up a bit more to own Home Depot than to own Lowe's. And I suppose that's the danger, Rory, in trying to reduce an investment thesis down to a single number or metric is that it's reductive. It ignores so many other aspects and dynamics in what is a massive company with many moving parts. Exactly. And that's why I say it's only, it really should only be used as a tool, should be part of your kind of investing arsenal rather than the thing that you rely on. Um, now, talking about price to earnings, a lot of companies, as we, talk, as we talked about, aren't profitable yet. They don't have earnings so that you can use something called price to sales, which instead of dividing the company's value by its earnings, you divide it by its total sales. And this is a tool used quite a lot with kind of software companies that aren't profitable yet. Um, and again, you can use it comparing like for like companies or companies that are very similar to each other. You can use it to measure the valuation of a company over time. But again, it doesn't tell you a huge amount about the business. Some people might say it's a sign that the company is greatly overvalued. Another person might say it's a sign that there's an awful lot of positive uh, sentiment about yeah, business. Yeah. So, you know, if company's doing very, very well, investors are willing to pay up more for it. And therefore, that's a sign that the company is, you know, a good company to invest in, perhaps at a premium valuation. But in terms of the idea of valuation, you know, the way we invest, we invest long term buy and hold. Uh, that means that we don't worry about really where the company is today. We worry about where the company is 10 years from now. Now, that doesn't mean that we ignore valuation. What we try to do is we f- try to find a reasonable value to buy a company. We're not in it. We're not in there going, we need to wait until this company is undervalued before we buy it. We're trying to find a place where we feel comfortable that's not outrageous, yeah. not like snowbleed valuations, because really good businesses will always seem overvalued. Uh, people will always pay up a premium for premium businesses. When you have a business that has a brilliant product that customers love, that have brilliant management and um, that have happy employees that, you know, have high insider ownership. When all those things happen with the rapid sales growth, investors yeah. pay up. They don't, you know, they're great businesses. Uh, you can find lots of terrible businesses that look undervalued, um, but then you're investing in terrible businesses. So so with long-term buy and hold, valuation, it's an important thing to think about, but it's not something that you base an entire investment on. It's it's kind of a balancing act there where you want to invest in a good business. You don't want to pay crazy money. So that's kind of where you need to find, it, find that kind of balance and find businesses that sit in a kind of nice spot there. Great. So that is the end of episode four. And this episode, we covered everything from revenue to balance sheets to how to value companies, or in this case, maybe not value companies. 
In the next episode, the final episode of this Get Started series, we're going to move on to the steps that you need to take in making your very first investment. We'll see you then. That's it for today's episode. If you like what you're hearing and want to level up your investing game, take the first step by heading over to mywallstreet.com to get access to our free stock analysis.